0: So you were just saying that you normally like to around this time of year, we're recording it's December 22nd, we're coming up on end of year, usually yeah. a hot time for people to be setting New Year's resolutions, what's going to be happening this next year. You actually take the opposite approach and look back on the, this last year and maybe reflect on that. Why do you choose to do that? Yeah, I think it's as anybody who's into like
1: kind of the self-development space and you follow all of the different authors and influencers in the space, you can learn a lot about all these hacks and setting your goals and your intentions for the year. I, I think at times I've struggled with never feeling like I'm good enough or like I've gotten enough done. Like my goals are never ambitious enough. So I think starting coming into the new year with a little bit more of a reflection practice or a gratitude practice of looking at all the stuff that happened in the past year and taking inventory there. And it's a good reminder that there's a lot of good in the world and a lot of good in my life and things that I should be grateful for. So just as important as it is for me to want to really focus on what do I want to accomplish in 24 and what are my new goals, taking the moment to realize just how lucky I am to be in the position I'm at. And I think using that helps, honestly, me approach those ambitious goals a little more freely and with a little more, a little less fear of failure. And that I know that my, my landing place
0: isn't too bad. So it's not necessarily that you don't set goals. It's just, you set the goals, but then you actually take some time to see, Hey, how did I achieve those and not necessarily just move the goalpost out another hundred yards and say, okay, next year, we're just gonna, we're gonna crank harder and we're gonna, we're gonna do even better.
1: Yeah, and I think that I I like the introspection as well. And I was doing this this morning, actually, I was looking at some goals and some stuff I had written down from the beginning of last year and beginning of this year. And I was, there were some things that I had on the list that I hadn't accomplished or hadn't spent as much time with. And rather than, like you said, just copy and pasting, say, oh, that's my new goal this year. I really did some value searching on, okay, why did I not pursue that goal? Why did I not invest the time that I originally wanted to go after that? And what does that inform about how my goal should look
0: different for the new year? Are you able to share, or do you mind sharing what that was?
1: Which one specifically was that? I think there were a couple of like specific objectives within work that I didn't spend the time the way I had thought. And part of that was just due to like my, you know, priorities and things changing within my workplace. And that honestly, a part of that, what that exercise then looked like was okay. How do I think more about my goals in terms of actions, behaviors, and how I'm influencing the people that I work with and for rather than a specific outcome? Because the outcomes can change as business goals change, right? I think that was a big one. I think like person like fitness was a, was one that I had, I maintained some fitness and exercise during the year, but I had originally had the goal of running a marathon, didn't make the training necessary to do that. Didn't pursue or get to where I could run a marathon in the year. So I really had to think, okay, what do I really, how do I really want fitness to be incorporated into my life? Do I want it to be this massive goal aspect or is it a mechanism that kind of supports my overall well being and is not this big ambitious thing that I need to pursue? Mm-hmm. I still don't have the full answer to that, but that's like an example of, okay, let me
0: recalibrate that. And do I really care about that goal? So it's, would you say it's more of a, you're focused on the system that will likely lead to the goal, whether or not it's that year or not. But like you said, you're focusing on the actions and behaviors and or like maybe another word for that might be the systems that might lead to the output of that. So like the system for running a marathon might actually just be, hey, there's like a certain mileage that I need to run every week to to actually get to that. And then maybe in hindsight, you look back and say, oh, I didn't run a marathon, but I did run 50 weeks out of the year. And maybe that also changes your evaluation when you look at if I didn't run the marathon or not.
1: Yeah. And I've, I tried to think a lot about if you almost view yourself as like a product, like what capabilities and features do I want to build into Joel? Running a marathon isn't necessarily a capability or a feature, a certain amount of cardiovascular endurance is. So that's how I start to think about, okay, what was it about that triggered me? Is it because it was something ridiculously ambitious and I want one of my features to be that I pursue ambitious goals? Or was it that I want the actual result that goal gives? And then when you strip it back to capabilities, I think, and this is probably something we'll talk about a little bit more today, it gives you more optionality and more flexibility in a world that we continue to see is more and
0: more changing. I like that. And I think that's interesting, too, because when you think about looking at like maybe a marathon runner or like somebody who has run in lots of marathons, they get associated with they're they're just the marathon person. They're like, oh, that person run 100 marathons. But there isn't really a lot of association with the fact that, yeah, that was the output. But let's think about their cardiovascular health. Like, how is that? What is that the system that goes into their running? 50, 60 miles a week, probably, to actually achieve those goals. And that that's, I think, probably a much better way to look at it. Have you read, there's a book by Scott Adams called How to Fail at Everything and Still Win Big. Have you read that?
1: No, I haven't. I'm building
0: my reading list for the new year, so that might be a good one to add. You should move this one up to the top if you if I'm sure that you've probably got some good uh runners up for well, uh, the order that it's going to go in, but it's it fits in nicely with this conversation because he talks about like just from the title it's what do you mean fail at everything win big it's and it's exactly this it's much less so outcome based and it's like how do I commit to creating behaviors that will eventually lead to the the outcome because a lot of times it's we are so disconnected from what actually achieving that output looks like. If you've never run before, running a marathon might be an ideal state, but you probably have no idea the lengths that it takes to actually achieve that. And But yeah. you can commit to, I'm going to run like 10 miles a week. That's something that's much more achievable and, and creating those like habits rather than just focusing on, oh, I need to do the X
1: Yeah, there's a podcast that I'm a really big fan of. It's called Chasing Excellence by Ben Bergeron. He's one of the world class CrossFit coaches and has coached a couple of world class, a ton of world class athletes. The phrase he uses a lot is I'm the kind of person that or I'm the type of person that dot and it's that same thing about falling in love with the process. So it's not I ran a marathon. It's, I'm the kind of person that runs every week, or I'm not the kind of person that eats processed sugar, or I'm the kind of person that reads 30 minutes every morning, whatever it is, like thinking about those innate capabilities and elements that you want to build. And I think when you hear world-class performers across a ton of domains talk, they have this ability to like, dissociate and detach from themselves and view themselves, like I said, through that lens of what capabilities and behaviors and habits do I have, not what experience am I having in the moment. And I think that's something that's been really cool. And I've tried to study and and copy from as many folks as I can learn from.
0: Mm -hmm. Are there other people that are top of mind other than Ben Bergeron's podcast, but are there other people that you look up to that you think do that really?
1: Yeah, as much as I so I'm a Big Ten, I'm an Ohio State football fan. So I'll probably catch a little bit of heat for this. But when you look at Nick Saban and the mindset that he brings to coaching, he talks about the process. And I think I want to say Belichick in New England have that same kind of phrase, but it's the process is the phrase they use. So it's not about just like you said earlier, it's not about getting stuck on what are the outcomes and what are the results. It's what are the behaviors and what are the actions that I need to take in this moment to build into whatever the future is? And I think I've I've heard a lot, you hear that now it's almost like a a cliche Instagram or LinkedIn influence tagline of fall in love with the process and
0: embrace the grind, but there's so much truth to it. Oh, big time. I know you and I have exchanged some choice words about LinkedIn influencers before. We may (laughs) fall down that rabbit hole today, but Yeah. It's much easier said than done. But I will say that if you are able to abstract yourself away from that, it's much easier to evaluate how you're actually doing rather than if you're just comparing yourself to, did I run a marathon this year versus looking at yourself in the week to week thing? Did, did I actually run the mileage that there's a formula for running a marathon And I'm I'm probably beating this analogy to death on the running thing, but apply this to anything. There are a bunch of inputs that go into anything and you need to break those down into those smaller things. And you need to like, if you can back up and look at, hey, did I do this one thing? I think it's easier to hold yourself accountable rather than just saying, oh, did I accomplish this goal?
1: Yeah. And I think there's more in life than we want to admit that has that where there's more or less there's a playbook right and i think you know things like even like career and relationships and some of these things that we think are like impossible to solve while they're, they're complex and they're not complete sciences there's almost there's a formula to having a healthy relationship now there's shades of gray on it but and there's a formula to navigating different career types and finding career success so i think it's this is something i work with like veterans that i'm coaching in transition it's how do you identify the process and then just fall in love with the process and work through it right like it's we tend to and that comes from that ability to detach and that ability to emotionally remove ourselves from the center of that hurricane and look at it with an outside perspective because once we are able to turn it into x's and o's it seems a lot easier to navigate i i
0: on this podcast, I generally now are like this far into the process. I've started to shy away from talking about career advice on a lot of stuff, just because it is a lot of times it's like, it's very a dime a dozen. And I think earlier mm-hmm. on when I started this, I was really looking for like the formula or the playbook or whatever on how to do things. And I what like went through so many iterations of talking to people about that. And when you and I first met and what, since we've talked a few times since then, I have been really interested to dive into talking about how you think about careers because you talk about it in a way that I've never heard somebody talk about it. And so um this is like a good teeing up to dive into some like career advice and how you're thinking about coaching not only like yourself, but like vets and stuff through their own career. And then you've also got like the track record to to show it too. So I'm excited to dive into that with you. Before we do that, yeah. will you maybe take a couple minutes and give us a high level overview of career up until this point? Yeah, try to give the
1: the elevator pitch as much as I can. I joined the Air Force right out of high school. I was in for years on the enlisted side. I was an aircraft electrician, or mostly an F-15s and C130s, so that was my, my specialty. I did, like I said, eight years stationed in Arizona, and RAF Lake and Heath with a couple of deployments thrown in there for good measure. So I get to live in England for four years, which was a fantastic opportunity. Just that alone, I think, is a huge selling point on. I got super lucky with my assignments, but join the military, see the world actually applied for me. so I was able to live in Europe for four years. I got out there was just a whole bunch of different things happening at once, but I had finished my degree, my undergrad degree while I was on active duty. That was there. The Air Force at the time was going through a whole bunch of different, like force shaping initiatives and sequestration and changing how they did special duty assignments, changing how they did like the OTS or the enlisted officer program that year had been completely canceled. I remember I got my application in and did all the work to get that done. And then was checking the website every day to see if there was a status update. And then one day I got an email from Big Air Force saying, hey, this program's not going to happen this year. So the combination of that and the economy seemed to be in a fairly stable place in 2014. My, my wife and I decided to, make, to not make the 20-year jumps. We separated from the military. My first job was at SpaceX in LA or at their Hawthorne campus really direct translation. So I was working as a lead wire harness technician, like leading the building of wire harnesses and the the capabilities or the technical requirements between fighter aircraft and rockets are not too different. So I was able to navigate that on a technical standpoint pretty easily. At SpaceX, it was Great, great employer, like all the cool stuff that you could imagine with a company like that, but was working on Second Shift and was working a lot, which is part of the gig and part of how those SpaceX is. And I didn't really think enough about what my I wanted my family life to look like. And I that's probably like the toughest time of my family or my own mental well-being. Certainly my wife and I's marriage, like it was really straining because I was we had a young child. Never saw my wife, never saw my daughter. She was stuck and alone. And I think part of it's why did we get out of the military? You see those sacrifices is making sense when you're on active duty or you understand they're part of the game when you're on active duty. But we were it wasn't the lifestyle we had really wanted. And I didn't do enough work to envision that before I took that job. I became one of the, whatever the the metric is, the veterans that leave their first employer within their first year, quit the job at SpaceX and moved back to Arizona without a job lined up. So I did all the things that you're supposed to do, all the perfect textbook career decisions, have the next career lined up, ignored that, didn't go for it. But I had a lot of faith in myself. And then I'd say you almost press fast forward a little bit on my career, but I landed a job at Target at their e-commerce fulfillment center. At the time, I believe it was the largest fulfillment center in their company. It was in uh, Tucson, Arizona, and fell in love with that almost immediately. It was a frontline operations manager. So if if you know anything about what Amazon Fulfillment looks like or any of those other companies, supervising a team at the frontline of picking and packing online orders. So maybe not the sexiest work in the world, but it was just this really cool balance of analytics and problem solving and thinking about systems and then needing to communicate and lead so i was able to really lean in on i think frontline nco leadership is really valuable in that setting so i fell in love with that i think within three or four weeks that of starting the job at target i enrolled in a master's program in, in supply chain management and then i've completed that master's had gi bill left over so i did my MBA, and have Gone through a couple different employers. So, Target to Chewy.com, which is a f- pet food online retailer. Then, from there to the vitamin shop, all in that same space of fulfillment planning and operations leadership. And then, about three years ago, through the magic of LinkedIn, found my current job within OptimRx from a connection I had met one time while I was at Target. Met this guy in 2016, and he posted the job that I ended up applying for and getting. In 20, at the end of 2020, and I got through the hiring process in early 2021 and started my job within Optum, which is part of United Health Group. And I really do it's expanding and growing in responsibility, but the core skill set that got me in the door there is really that operations and production planning. So the ability to plan resources, balance demand and labor, and figure out how to build accurate plans to deliver overall cost optimization. So that's sort of it, and it's been a, it's a pretty quick, I'd say, journey in terms of, I think I'm aver, I was averaging about two years per employer, a couple a little less, a couple a little bit more, but have moved forward and changed up employers every couple years, and hopefully now I think I've had, I've found a, a good landing place for a
0: while. <laughs> no, that's good. It's interesting how you. <laughs> I, I, at least speaking for myself and a lot of the people that I was enlisted with, there's such a big rush to get out and just go get a job. It just doesn't even matter as long as I'm not in the military anymore. It just, anything will be better than this, but it's very quick to see like how the circumstances mentally change when you get in it and you're just, oh, would I have been better off staying in? This isn't exactly what I imagined. Yeah. And it really comes back to, like you were talking about, the you need to plan. You actually have to think about how, what sort of lifestyle you're wanting to have. The family thing, as you mentioned, does this align with my long-term career goals? If you want to be doing wire harnesses for the rest of your life, that you need to make that decision. And I, I know talking to people, later career people too, it's easy to see how if you're not super aggressive about working towards the thing that you are actually wanting to be doing it's easy to get locked into a certain industry or even a company and then it only becomes more and more difficult to get out of that because then all of a sudden all of your skills are in one thing and you need to completely change over to something new
1: yeah yeah, I think so. There's a lot there. Like golden handcuffs are definitely real in a lot of different settings, and I think you see that with people that jump from the military directly into like defense contracting or something really similar, where your most financially the highest compensation you're going to get from a role is probably directly translated from exactly what you're doing in the military. I think I still get emails to to, to this day to go work on F-15s in Saudi Arabia, and it pays a ton of money to do that not super aligned with my personal values. But that is the work that I don't see as much as like I do resume seminars and I give interview prep advice and I spend a lot of time on the the X's and O's of the job search and all of that with veterans. But every time I have a coaching conversation, the advice that I come back to is like, how well do you really understand yourself and how much work have you done on that emotional journey? Because otherwise, I can get you ready to crush it for an interview with SpaceX, like I did. And if that's not the work life and the dynamic that you're looking for, you're gonna climb this ladder just to realize that it's been leaning against the wrong
0: wall the whole time. Mm-hmm. We're gonna talk about like how I look at it as three kind of distinct segments when it comes to the job and career search. And the the first one is this industry positioning where it is that you align with either the specific company or the industry that you're specifically pursuing. How is it that you think about aligning yourself? Maybe it's not necessarily resume. A lot of that kind of advice is good, but it's not like super like high level thinking. It's just, yeah, yeah, make sure that you're Experience is talking about what the job is asking for, but is there anything unique that you think you are thinking about and coaching veterans through as they are like trying to position themselves for what they want? Yeah.
1: So I think if you start with the big abstract question of what do you want to do, which is almost impossible to, to like answer, right? That's the million dollar question that we all juggle with. You can break it into two different components. You can either look at what kind of problems do I want to solve or what kind of environment do I want to work in? And you have to decide which of those is most important to some extent to help influence your career path. And there might be, there's some overlap and some gray area there, but when you, I'll give you an example of both. If it's what kind of problems do I want to solve? I like to solve complex system-based operational problems. I can build that skill set and make an impact in e-commerce fulfillment. I can do it in manufacturing rockets. I can do it in the healthcare system with it, with my current employer. Right. I've leaned in on the skills and found ways to make myself marketable across different industries or different market segments. If it's environment based, it might be that maybe your real passion is to work in the new green economy and you really want to work on climate change. There's only certain companies that are really going to scratch that itch. So then you have to view it more from a lens of what does that industry or what does that market segment need? And how do I create the skills or be the person that's needed to fit into that niche? And if we talk about healthcare, if you wanted to directly impact the health outcomes of individuals or so talking like patient care at this point, you have to go into being a nurse or being a doctor or being a pharmacist or something in that direct patient facing space. So I think about either what problems do I want to solve or what environment do I want to be in? Once you know which of those two is tugging on you the hardest, I think you can start to build a little bit
0: more clarity on your road. I really like that. And it's clear that you have like you're practicing what you preach because I when I first came across your resume and like work experience, I was like, how does this guy jump from like SpaceX to like fulfillment to like this healthcare thing? And it, it's exactly what you said. You're talking about, oh, I'm focusing more on problems. And that, like you said, those are types of maybe not necessarily SpaceX, but the in the other yeah. one since then, the problems that you're solving are applicable almost anywhere. And it, I would imagine that that probably makes the job search more difficult, but it also makes you super flexible in terms of where you can go and work. And as long as it's maybe in the trajectory of it may not be like a clear advancement path, but as you jump back and forth up the ladder, you're able to demand higher paying roles and things like that. But I I guess coming around to a question here, has that been more difficult when it's not like a traditional, oh, I work at this big company and then I go work at a small company and then I do this where there's not really a clear for you?
1: Yeah, I think it's almost in phases, right? So the e-commerce fulfillment piece, like that industry in particular, so I'm talking your big Amazon, Target, Walmart, Chewy, those companies, it's, a, it's as close to the military, honestly, as you'll get in terms of the skill sets are very easy to, to understand. They're highly translatable. So you can almost, you can look at a couple hundred resumes within that industry and know where people fall from a skill set in and, and an income potential standpoint, like what their earnings should be. So within that element, it was, frankly, it was like I was either being poached or applying to, to employers, but it was all on the strength of the resume and the skills that I had built. I'd say the, the transition into healthcare was a combination. Number one, I got, there was an element of luck where a role that really fit with my skills was open at the right time. And then I was able to look for ways to apply that skill in kind of unique settings. And another sort of underrated thing is being a don't want to mess the analogy up but being a big fish in a small pond, and while that sounds weird to say about a Fortune Five company, I joined a, a segment of the business that didn't have a lot of the the expertise that I had. right? I work with a lot of brilliant clinicians. I work with people that are really seasoned business leaders. But my particular skill set was relatively rare, and that gave me the opportunity to impact it in, in a different way and find unique ways of doing things that I think
0: helped build my brand or build my success portfolio. Do you think one of those is a better way to go, or is that a personal decision that when you're coaching vets you you need to pick? I think both of those are could be the option. It's probably
1: a little safer to pick problem to solve. There's probably not going to be a shortage of problems and challenges in the workplace in the next 20 plus years for my career I can't predict what those will be but I know there's going to be problems the challenge with environment is that sometimes environments if you cast it too narrowly the entire environment could disappear right so I think if you feel like the environment is something that you want to be the, the leading factor of your job search a you need to do a little bit of market research to believe that's going to be there long term And then have done the soul searching to know that it's really the core of who you are. And I'd say in those, you need to be willing for your career to be a bigger part of your identity than in the problem to solve. And I think that's something that vets struggle with as a transition in general is the idea of your identity not being tied to what you do anymore.
0: Do you factor in what maybe gives you personally energy? Do you think about, man, I'm, I really feel energized by maybe working in the healthcare field versus, oh, I really feel energized by it. I think I know the answer for you, but I guess, do you think about that in coaching people as Hey, what are, what gets you excited? Is it working towards this kind of mission thing or which is much more like the narrow space or the field? Yeah. Are, Are you thinking about that personal kind of fulfillment from that?
1: Yeah, I, I do. And I'm really lucky that I'm able to. So I was a problem to solve. Like I focus on the problems and the skill set for my career search. I've been really lucky to be able to do that in the healthcare industry, which is it obviously ties and brings it a whole different level of meaning. When we're talking about life saving medication for our patients versus shipping somebody's book over the holiday season. Both are important, both meet a business demand. One, I tend to feel a little more personally resonates with, but the, I think you can overvalue that because a lot more of your meaning is going to be de- described or come from the people that you spend time with in at work. When you think about a company as large as mine, its or Fortune 5, I think it's larger than the U.S. Navy at last time I checked. There are going to be good pockets and pockets that maybe don't line up as well with you across any group of people that big. So you've got to think about, for, even if the big mission is really cool, what is your day-to-day going to look like, right? Like if you're in the Air Force and your your big mission is global air power, the, expe- the Air Force experience of an F-15 mechanic and somebody who's working at the the dining facility and a security forces member and a special operator are all going to be really different. So you have to think about what is your day job going to actually be in this company that you think is going to align with all your values.
0: You also said something a few minutes ago I want to pull on. you were talking about being a big fish in a small pond. And I think that when you position it that way, it's super easy to see why that would be valuable. If you're the only one with a specific skill set or know about a certain area, it's going to be really easy to demonstrate how good you are. And even if you aren't that good, like you probably are going to benefit from the fact that everybody's going to be looking to you make a decision and you can frame it up that way, Um, that you're like one of one. And I I think that we thought about that a lot in the Navy. I had a very, there was much less people that had like a specific school that I had. And so it was like, you felt higher value and it actually got me out of certain like weird security billets and stuff because it's, oh, we have less of these people. So I, I like have felt that in a big way. How have you, or do you think about looking for those in the opportunity? Like as you're evaluating a a specific job, are you saying, Hey, who, who am I going to be reporting to? How are you thinking about measuring being that the, the, the big fish?
1: Yeah, man, there's so many different layers to it because there's pros and cons, right? And that if you are the expert and you can carve out your little niche, that might be awesome. You might find that your own growth and your ability to innovate stagnates in if you don't have thought partners that can really help to sharpen that. So I think that's something to consider. Yeah, looking at the career stories as much as you can, whether it's before you take a new job or as you're getting into the job, understanding who else has you're working with and for and what have their career journeys been like help you to understand if it's does that particular organization value career mobility or do they value technical expertise more? So understanding what are those like cultural talent norms can be really beneficial in in knowing how to volunteer for projects or to ask for additional support or all of those things start to come from understanding those dynamics that are a layer down within the organization.
0: Mm -hmm. I really like that. That's I think very well put and I, your positioning, this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you because you have got some really good ideas about what people ought to think about when it comes to to career stuff. The second like bullet, I guess we'll call it a uh, subject that we had talked about a little bit before, but you had talked about reaching a quote unquote, like a career title that you thought would be super meaningful to you, but not finding it as fulfilling as you thought. Talk to me about... W- your experience with that and your journey through maybe feeling that. Yeah. And I
1: think it was when I first, I got that first job at Target and understood the industry. I had built this mental map. I didn't have a specific title or an exact position. Like I want to be this exact person, but I it highlighted some goals. I'm like, here's where I want to go, where I see myself, my career going. And it was a director level leader overseeing multiple different sites within a fulfillment operation. I framed that up, and you, you associate all these different salary expectations and things with that. And then when I got my job within United United Healthcare or UHG, sorry, I had checked all the boxes. I made it. I was like, perfect. I, I got there. Mission accomplished. We're done, right? George Bush hang up the banners on the aircraft carrier. We're done. And I i am still in that job and I still love that job but there were times where I just was like wait a minute I don't feel that euphoria and that deep fulfillment from work and it was this realization that oh yeah work is not supposed to be the most fulfilling mechanism of your life like that that, for most of us right for most people work is not going to be the end-all be-all of your personal fulfillment so it really led me to think about two different things that I think have helped me a ton. Number one is, what are like we talked about at the beginning, what are the processes or the behaviors or the actions within that job that really do feel fulfilling? What are the behaviors and what are the things that I do at work that make me feel like I'm being the person I was meant to be? Right, That's where fulfillment really comes from the title, the role, some of that stuff is transitory and can change. And you don't always have full control over that. Like I do have control over the type of leader that I try to be and how I show up for my team and how I collaborate and how I try to challenge myself at work. That can be fulfilling, much more fulfilling than a specific title. And then I think finding ways to give back. And for me, that's been leaning heavily into supporting the veteran community and providing as much career support and coaching as I can to others that are making that same jump. And I think about trying to be the type of mentor that I wish I had when I got out. I didn't reach out or look for many mentors. so That was a a failure on my own part. But being that person has been a huge or trying to be that person has been a huge source of personal fulfillment as
0: well. Do you think that it took reaching that goal to like actually have that realization? Like, do you think that's something that you can instill in other people to prevent people from having to go down that experience of chasing this maybe title or like this ideal state only to find that it's not there. Because I've felt and done the same thing. It's, hey, I want this, you get there and it's just "Eh." either the goalpost moves or you have exactly what you're talking about, the realization that "Eh, maybe it's more of these other things that, you know, the inputs, as we talked about earlier, it's the people, it's something else.
1: Yeah, I think for me, it, it, I was on this kind of personal mental health self-discovery journey and the timeline wrapped up exactly with kind of coincided with that job. So for me, it all happened at once. So I guess I almost didn't have a choice, but it was one of the it was the final nail that hit home where I was like, oh, I understand a lot about myself now. I think there are people out there that are capable of learning lessons like that without experiencing them personally. And I think most of us tend to have that, oh, but that won't happen to me mindset, right? Where you hear about other vets transitioning or other people, whatever the the guy that got the corner office and realized that it didn't mean anything. Like we hear those stories, but until you live that, most of us assume, oh, it's different with me. And I think that's probably one of the most dangerous elements of being a human.
0: Right. That's a, it's a very dangerous phase. It's different for me, or if it's different this time, that will come back and bite you hard in a real way. 100%. One of the other things that you had talked about making sure or trying to like almost hedge your career when it comes to pursuing that title, like maybe you want something and I'm not sure if this kind of was something that you had thought about from the very beginning, but trying to hedge having, or how do I want to put this? You're trying to reach a certain goal because you think that it's what you want, but you also want to keep your options open. And I think that that's, especially in the military, once you're in an MOS or whatever, it's very difficult to get out of it. In the, the civilian career field, you've got lots of options and you can jump around How have you thought about maybe in the context of being a problem solver type of you're optimizing to solve a specific problem? How have you thought about trying to keep optionality for your career?
1: Yeah, I think there was an initial stage of safety net creation where some of my initial, I got out and was for a while, single income family. I didn't have military pension. I didn't have retirement. Like it was on me to provide for the, for my family. And we can't ignore that reality of the transition, right? As much as we want to talk about pursue your passion and find the perfect role. Sometimes you need a job to pay your bills and that's okay. Like that there's value in all work and we need to not downplay people who are just providing. So uh, some of my initial career skill building and that approach was building some safety net so that if things go wrong, if my current employer, whatever company I'm with at the time, there's layoffs, there are changes, and I need to find a new job, I feel re- as confident as I can in my ability to find another job to keep paying the bills. You think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like food and shelter is before personal fulfillment. You really have to think about your career in those steps. I'd say even, and this is pre-COVID and pre the remote work boom, but we moved from Tucson to Phoenix, largely because I, I had a job that Relocator brought me up to Phoenix, which was great. There are a lot more jobs in Phoenix. And I think I told my wife something to the effect of, if this job closes, I can shop my resume up and down I-10 and find a job within a couple of weeks that'll cover the mortgage, right? You have to address that. And I think then once you've built that safety net and that security, that gives you the, that's the foundation that you can go explore different elements and different career paths and really get more into climbing as those hierarchy of needs and getting more towards the personal fulfillment side. That's going to be a little bit different for everybody, right? Depending on if you're retiring, what you're, if you're married, what your spouse's income situation looks like, your kids and what stage of life you're at, all of that can change how much safety net you want to lean on versus how much creativity. But I think for me, having a fallback point or like a base level of here's what I'm capable of has been really helpful because then it allows you to get a little bit more bold in shooting your shot on jobs and opportunities that maybe are just at the edge of your capability.
0: Being junior in the military, I always wondered why, like the older civilian guys in our shop or even senior enlisted, would were always hammering about go out and see the world and go do all this crazy stuff while you're young and single. And I'm just like, man, uh, shut up! Like it's fine, and you know. And then all of a sudden, you get a family, and you're like, oh, I see now. Yeah. They know exactly what you're talking about because that commitment is is real. And it's, it's cool to see, I hear a lot of people talk about how they actually start making more money when they have a family, because it, it lights a fire under your ass, like nothing else. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. And I think now, again, I had to learn to balance that with making career sacrifices that maybe I didn't need to make at the cost of strain on the family. So you've got to be able to put those in and it's, again, it's really tough, especially for guys that like got out in your URI's position when you're in the enlisted space and you're, you don't have a lot to fall back on. Like, it's hard to find that, that journey.
0: Yeah. Uh, getting out as an officer versus enlisted is a much different story. Even four years, like a lot of people are getting out married and or with kids. And like the equation is just totally different like entering the job market with some experience, but you don't have a degree. And not that a degree is everything, but like your case was a little bit different, but I know I look back on my own personal experience and I feel so lucky to have had the ability to be like, hey, I'm going to move in with my parents and be a poor college kid while I use my GI Bill to go to school. Yeah, A ton of, if you have kids or a family, there's no way you can do that. And yeah, that that kind of optionality is like a big deal depending on where you are like in your general like personal life growth yeah
1: and i think there's a a lot of a phrase i've been using a lot with people i'm working with is grace right if that is you if you are in that spot where you have to pay the bills and whatever those situations are and you feel stuck give yourself the grace that again your career doesn't define who you are your job doesn't define who you are there's more honor and beauty in you providing for your family as long as it's not illegal but doing any job that provides for your family is more honorable and noble than having a, a, a title or a certain impact or a certain company that you work with like that all comes secondary after taking care of yourself and taking care of those who are really dependent on you give yourself the grace if you feel like your career isn't Achieving everything that you want
0: because you're still taking care of the most important thing, which is your family I couldn't have said it better that's uh, it's very true, hard to accept, but uh very true and especially yeah. coming from people that are maybe really high agency it's really h- difficult to accept that because it's man, I know I should be doing these other things, but i I'm either at the end of my I am maxed out on time commitment already and I don't really have the time to pursue these other things. So that grace is a big piece. You said something else too that I thought was interesting. You were talking about, I could go shop my resume down I-10. And I, I think yeah. that the analogy that you're making there is like in Phoenix, the main highway, there's probably like a thousand different distribution warehouses yeah. in that corridor there. How, or what do you think about surrounding yourself or being in close proximity to the opportunities that maybe you are most likely to have. Obviously, we're living in a kind of a post-COVID, still weirdly remote world. How that influences your career is it hits everybody different. But something like that, if you're going to work in fulfillment, you're going to be there. And if you're living way out in the sticks, like that may not be an option. So was that kind of front of mind for you in terms of backstopping or hedging again.
1: Yeah, and I think that's, again, that can be layered into the environment discussion. Like there are certain mm-hmm. people who they're like, for w- whatever reason, I'm going to live in this city or in this state or this area. This is, you know, home for me and where I'm gonna live. Understand that'll influence your decision I think for me, like that Phoenix example was, yeah, you're right. I-10 is the main freeway that runs down and every company you've ever heard of pretty much has a distribution center, a fulfillment center in Phoenix. That was the right balance of, okay, we like this city. It offers, it's not, I'm not going to pretend that Phoenix is the greatest city in the world and I love it more than anything, but it offers enough of the benefits we were looking for in a family balanced with the career mobility options. Now, again, with COVID kind of changing, that's helped me evolve my own personal thoughts on, okay, remote work is a thing. I'm a remote worker now. How do I incorporate that into my new calculus? And I think that's another big thing that like, I'm constantly evolving my own career journey and my own thoughts on how I need to take care of myself. Um, It's not the kind of thing that you just, get to a certain level and then you're done, right? Like career development is an ongoing thing. And I'd say, honestly, you need to put more effort into it. The higher you go and the further you go in your career.
0: One last thing on this topic and it segues into our last topic. Uh, You said something in the context of talking about avoiding it, taking a job because it pays more. And you said this phrase, you said, avoid looking for a box to fit in rather than saying, what shape am I? What? does that sentence mean so that's where you
1: start to talk about that problem to solve for skill set mentality and the environment conversation that's when that venn diagram starts to overlap a little bit right you can bring those two together because what i see, i think it, it's a trope but it's the most common thing we see is that people want to get out and they want to do exactly what translates into for most military veterans it's defense contracting and this is not a knock on that industry or any of those employers at all but people will jump directly into that, or like in my case, it was directly into building wire harnesses for another for an aerospace company. I started thinking I focused a lot on what box should I try to fit into, and less thinking about what shape am I and what boxes or squares or circles do I need to find to fit into. And I think that's where you can, even if you're looking for certain problems to solve and building your career on that, like I have finding the things that feel like the right environment are also important and can be a part of that search. Mm -hmm. So there's a self-discovery element of the military transition and the career hunt that I think gets super underplayed or undervalued, especially in the LinkedIn vet bro, LinkedIn influencer space. We don't talk about that emotional self-discovery enough And we focus too much on just check these boxes to fit into this square, this square hole without thinking about whether or not you're a round peg.
0: And you got to, I think a lot of that is driven by just like the nonprofit space. Like there's so many like vet or kind of like transition nonprofits. And I think that they're good, but the sole objective that so many of them are tied to is like, we're here to get you a job. Like there's not even really Mm -hmm. a conversation about, Hey, this is what I'm looking to accomplish. And that is something that is such a big deal, because if you join the military when you're 18 and you do one enlistment or two, I guarantee you that you probably have no idea what you actually want to do in your life. Like you just haven't done enough things yet to know whether you like or hate either what you're doing in the military. And you certainly haven't explored enough to see. And because so many things, you have to go out there and do the thing. You have to try a lot. You got to talk to people. You got to Interview people in other industries to find out what's out there. And they're like, okay, I guess I need to get a job or I need to go to school. They get plugged in with a nonprofit and they're like, okay, let's make sure we get you into a job. And yeah, you've got that. You've the bottom portion of the hierarchy is taken care of, the food shelter, paying your bills, but you're not that was also taken care of at your last employer, the military, too. And so yeah. you're they're not like moving you up that at all.
1: Yeah, and I think they're we're seeing I and th- to your point, the, the the veteran space or the VSO space is just so broad that like it's hard to even make statements about the entire field. So I wouldn't want to like paint with too broad of a brush.
0: Thanks for calling From me on my that.
1: You're exactly right. <laughs> no, it's just it's more to preface or protect what I'm about to say, but like my observation is that there there are two big camps that they fall into. It's either find a job or focus on well-being, right? There is a lot of great work and passionate work in suicide prevention and PTSD and mental health and all of those buckets. I personally have not always seen that we do a good job either as like veteran advocates or the VSO space of viewing those two as like connected things, right? Because you think about what are the social determinants of health that are building towards mental health, Negative outcomes or suicide within the veteran community, like your job and your income can be a part of that. Like we all know those stories of somebody either didn't get a job or struggled with unemployment and that has self identity issues or that causes stress in their marriage. And then now the snowball's building and then you work towards really negative outcomes. I don't think we always view how intertwined those two journeys are. You only have one Brock, you don't have Brock the employee and Brock the soul. Brock soul has to come to work every day.
0: I've never thought about that before, but that's really true. When I think about, like you said, the VSOs, it's just, okay, we're here to get you a job or we're here to, we're, it's like therapy counseling. It's more, uh, or like even more like the funner, like vets and outdoors thing. It, It just is like, they're two completely separate camps. That's, I've never thought about that, but that's spot on.
1: Yeah. And I think we're, it feels like you're starting to see maybe some people to recognize that more and to trend in that direction. But that's just how I've seen it. Right. And it's to your point, we need to raise the bar on both of those. Not committing suicide is not the mark of successful veteran mental health space. Right. Like, that can't be where we say stop veteran suicide can't be where we stop this journey. Just employ more veterans can't be. I can go get you a job making minimum wage right now, anywhere here in Phoenix, that doesn't mean that I've supported your post-military journey correctly.
0: So you've worked with a ton of vets, and I know that you've thought a lot about this space. What do you think that, let's, maybe we could brainstorm here for a second. What do you think a combination of those things actually looks like?
1: Yeah, I think it's, but it's much easier said than done. But when you think about a really robust social fabric, having people in your and resources in your life that can help both right think about like your good friends the same kind of friends who you can talk to about whatever stress or pressures you're feeling in life the same person you can talk to about like a disagreement with your spouse that person would probably also be willing to refer you to a job or to help give you resume advice and everybody in your community is going to be maybe more or less on one continuum or another but it's it's about finding a, a tribe and finding a community that you can count on for both. I think there are there are also definitely demographic as, aspects that need to be thought of, right? Like you and I have a similar journey and that we got out relatively young. We were both enlisted, both had a certain career outcome. Like finding people that have been in that set of shoes is probably going to resonate a lot more than a retired colonel who doesn't need to work but is doing it because it's fulfilling and chasing a career goal finding people that match you at a life experience standpoint i think is really powerful too hearing people that can say yep i went through that and it's it's not as bad as it feels there's a light at the other end of the tunnel from people that have gone through that same tunnel is really powerful
0: that's really true and it's i think you highlighted there it's somebody might be more on one continuum than another, but it it is really difficult to find those people. And you end up having to find, this is something I've read in several military transition books is like you have different people for different things. Like you need somebody that's 20 years ahead of you for like general life sort of career advice. And then like maybe somebody that's like a couple years ahead for like more tactical career stuff. And then you need Peers who are going through the same thing, but can't really like can't, they're not really going to be able to help you that much. They're just go oh, up going through this with you. It's super difficult to find the overlap of all of those things. People who will maybe bet you have something in common with in terms of just like you can interact well with one another. You've got some overlap and kind of values and I- ideals, but then and you can get on with them. And then you also have like they're ambitious enough in their career and you're directionally going the same way too, where they may actually be able to offer you something in terms of your professional life. That's super, that's really difficult.
1: Yeah, and you it takes effort. I think in general, when we talk about building a network, but it takes effort and intentionality to build that personal board of directors or whatever you want to call it. And you have to think about how are you going to How do you want people to be involved in your life? What role would you like them to play that they are willing and able to play? You have to think about people, again, from that detached perspective of, okay, I know Brock, here's how I can see Brock and I working together, or interacting, and here's like how we can best help each other. But I do love what you talked about of having that, the phrase I've heard is like a personal board of advisors. And knowing how to categorize people within that chain
0: so that you're getting the most value out of every interaction. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to touch on a couple final things here. Um, You said this statement earlier, but this is what I had captioned this like last section on and like less resume, more self-discovery. And I think that's important because it, as you've highlighted in this discussion, it's not Binary outcomes that we're talking about. We're talking about your life and your soul, as you mentioned. We're talking about, yeah, we're working beyond just paying the bills, or hopefully we are. We're looking for that self actualization or whatever it is, and kind of the things that it takes to occur. What are your thoughts on stoicism?
1: Uh, so yeah, stoicism has been a big part of my journey. I think it, if I can trace the idea in my mind correctly, it started with Jocko Willink and that really famous good video that everybody's seen. Certainly anybody who's ever worked with me has seen it or heard it. And that led me to the obstacle is the way by Ryan holiday, which then like from there, once you're in the Ryan holiday universe, you're either you hate stoicism or you're a card carrying like deep member. For me, it's been incredibly impactful. It's been a huge part of my discovery and. One of those core elements of it is understanding that, like, there are so many things outside of your control that if you hand over your well being to those things, you will always be miserable because there's no shortage of minor to severe inconveniences in life, right? From the coffee shop being out of the flavor I wanted that morning to like major medical issues, like, life is going to not bend to our will. For me, Stoicism's been a huge part of my personal development practice of understanding what values do I want to live by? And then how am I measuring as much as I can, measuring myself against that yardstick? Because at the end of the day, again, that's been what means the most to me in terms of personal fulfillment is like, who do I want to be?
0: And am I measuring, comparing myself to that vision and that goal? There's so many really powerful ideas in Stoicism that you just like, I regularly try to like work through meditations. I haven't read any of Ryan Holiday's books. They're on my kind of like two. I'm a big Ryan Holiday fan and I know he's written extensively about it and listened to some of his podcasts, but I regularly work through meditations and it's something that you just, you read some of these sentences and one, it is a great reminder that there is not a single new thing under the sun. We are still dealing with the same exact problems internally as we ever have. And external changes in our environment have absolutely no bearing on how we should be carrying ourselves. And yeah. it just, you- man, it, it really gets you to think and think about how you carry yourself, how you, like you said, I like what you said about measuring yourself. And ultimately, that's really what matters and holding yourself to a higher and higher bar. And the cool thing about
1: meditations in particular is that it was Marcus Aurelius' private journal that he wrote to himself and never intended for it to be read or discovered by other people. It's such a cool opportunity. It'd be the equivalent of getting to hear the most private self-doubt mantras that the presidents or, or prime ministers, the most powerful people in the world, are sharing. And it's a good reminder that when you're reading this and understanding, he was more powerful probably than anybody alive today is. He was that influential and important. He had the same human issues that we all had, right? He struggled to get out of bed in the morning, struggled to control his temper. It's a good reminder that that challenge is never going to stop, right? You aren't on this journey for the problems to go away. You're on this journey to earn the ability to solve bigger problems.
0: There's this Kevin, Oh, there's this Kevin Kelly quote that I've probably said audibly 10 times in the last week, because I just keep coming across these instances that like where it's relevant, but he says the reward for doing good work is more work. And that idea is so contrary to just everything that I've ever believed, thinking that in the military that somehow if I stayed in for 20 years that I would maybe reach retirement and just, I don't know, I guess go sit on a beach and do nothing. And like the, it just isn't that way. There's your career and everything that we talked about today is like going to continue evolving and may stop at some point, but the bigger mission that is is more important than all of that is like the internal journey and trying to live as nature requires as like marcus would say yep yeah absolutely we've gone through a lot of stuff here about the internal journey career finding things that are meaningful to you and executing on them is there anything that you we missed that we should talk about You had said something that I think we were both talking about the same line of the
1: responsibility, the reward for good work is more work. I think about that a lot within the veteran community. I personally feel like I got a lot more out of my service than I gave. And I feel like there's an obligation for me and for anybody else who feels like that to reach back and give back to the community. I think about the institution of the US veteran ecosystem, and it's so easy for it to turn into this narcissistic kind of vet bro political thing. But the beauty of it is like, we're part of a heritage that ranges back to the American Revolution. And I think that the responsibility of kind of the title of United States veteran, it's something that we need to take really seriously. And you earn that status every day, right? I don't think about it as something that I did. And I've checked the box and I now am detached from it's I'm part of a brotherhood that I, I owe a debt to, right? Like I feel the obligation to continue to work and continue to serve and continue to give back to the community. So I would really encourage anybody that's listening to, if you are a veteran, especially if you're finding like a struggle for meaning or you're not finding that fulfillment, find ways to give back and to get involved, right? Participate in your company's ERG, become a mentor. And it doesn't even have to be veteran specific, right? Like volunteer for whatever sets your heart on fire, volunteer with your church, volunteer with local homeless shelters, just find a way to keep giving back. Because I think what meant the world to most of us while we served was that we were giving to something bigger. That's a choice that you don't have to turn off just because you've left the military. You can choose to continue to
0: give back and contribute to society. I love that mentality. And the words that you use there were so powerful. The part of a heritage, like uh, that's that's a good one right there. I haven't heard it put that way before but like when you said that it's like shook me internally because it's true and it is hurtful to be around and continuously see this mentality of like you said a lot of people we got more and that's okay got more than we gave and that's totally okay I probably feel the same for very similar reasons but then that it becomes like this for the rest of our lives with coming up with our handout to the rest of the United States, the government, the VA. And that isn't to say that that shouldn't be taken care of. And if you've got injuries or whatever, that should be taken care of. But the mentality of which that's approached is repulsive by a lot of people. And it makes me angry because it's, like you said, it's not, We all of a sudden this switch is just flipped. It's okay, now you owe me. Even though I signed up to do this, and was compensated handsomely for it in terms of just pay and benefits and just like the respect of this country, like as if somehow that isn't enough. And
1: yeah. It can be both, right? You can expect benefit from your service. You can you have the absolute right to expect healthcare from the VA and support from resources for things that you know that you need. So by no means am I saying, if you need help, please understand that you deserve and are entitled and earned that support. Like I used my GI Bill. I use healthcare through the VA. I'm more than happy to take advantage of the benefits that are offered to me as a veteran. But you can do both. You can simultaneously need help and need support and give back. It's not this either or kind of concept, right? It's okay to ask for help where you need it and in the places that you can use it. And simultaneously, give where you're strong. That's what a beautiful society really is, right? We're covering each other's weaknesses. And I think that's the piece that I see a lot of vets struggle with, is that they're like, if they're asking for help, that doesn't mean they're helpless. It means they need one category of help. And they still have a lot to give in a lot of other areas.
0: Man, you're dropping some one-liners here. I, uh, <laughs> I I dig it. And it's clear that you've, you've thought through this a lot. And I appreciate and respect how much care you've put into that and your willingness to try and continue to give back. And you had mentioned ERGs earlier. I know you're a, a leader of your ERG or either that or very actively involved in yours, right?
1: Yeah, I'm the co-chair for the United co-chair. Health Group Employee
0: Resource Group. And those are like, maybe just talk about those briefly. Like we, I, my last company, we had one of those that was just being set up. Maybe talk about what an ERG is really briefly. And maybe people can look out for those if their company offers them.
1: Yeah, I think and it, it can definitely vary a little bit by company, right? They can, there's a lot of different nuances in how they can be set up. But the general idea is that, and at United Health Group, ours is under the broader DEI office, right? So our diversity, our diversity, equity, and inclusivity office. So it supported that, and the idea is that you support employees of different groups that have various challenges or in their employment journey, and it could be challenges needing different support. But the general idea is that you want the ERG to represent the need the needs of that employee group and advocate within the company. So ours, I really like the way ours is structured and that there's the right level of executive support, right? So I mentioned I'm the the co-chair. Our chair is a very senior leader within the organization who understands how the organization works, understands how to cut through red tape and clear issues. We're really passionate about, I think, where ERGs get a bad rap, especially within the veteran community, is where they feel like just a Pat on the back, isn't it great to be a veteran kind of community? What I think really good, because it's a, look how great we are, what we were just talking about, I'm a veteran, I'm special. Where I think really good ERGs work and where they try to help is delivering actionable change that address the real issues of that community, right? So when you think about things like pay and leave policies for reserve and guard members, when you think about things like spouses that are impacted by active duty spouse relocations, when you think about things like advocating for mental health resources within the company for veterans that are impacted within, within the mental health space, those are some of the things that I think ERGs can approach in addition to hiring events and some of that stuff. But I think good ERGs look far beyond the the veteran day pizza party.
0: Yeah, and there's a bias to, to I think that's one of the big deals and also like larger takeaways here is just hey isn't this kind of feel-good party or whatever and just talk about the good old days it's no we're getting together to serve and to advocate for other people that are, are like us and that kind of need extra support and maybe it's skill advancement I know the ours that was being set up was being it was very focused on the the company was so large there would be like Opportunities for people with like clearances that you wouldn't even know about, and so like yeah. vets would come in and be like, "Hey, we're looking for people that can do this," and like you could hire and move internally, and lots of upskilling and speakers and stuff that come in, lots of different opportunities. And I know that they're probably more popular at very large organizations, but I bet if your company has a DEI office, or maybe even if they they don't, probably approaching HR or whoever to maybe try to start one would probably be something cool that you could do at your own company. Yeah, I think that's
1: a great challenge. And honestly, I would say if if your company does have one and you don't think it's a great ERG or you're not in love with what they're doing, get involved and help to influence the change that you want to see. I think, again, like the bias for action, don't sit around and wait for somebody to provide the perfect ERG or resource for you. Go make that thing that you want to be, right? Like I talked about trying to be the mentor that i needed 15 or 10 years ago when i got out go be that person go be that change that you want to see
0: joel this has been a really good fun conversation we've talked about so much and there's tons of actionable career stuff that we've gone over lots of internal reflection things to walk away with one of your main messages has been to give back and try to in and insert yourself into the, the veteran community in kind of a meaningful way and what that exactly means. Do you think, is that the most important thing that we should take away from this conversation or is there something else that jumps out to you?
1: Yeah, I think that for me, that's the end result of kind of the, the overall theme is viewing your military transition and your career journey as part of your total life story. Right, like the thing I always, I, there's this Henry Rollins quote, I saw it, it was almost like a meme or an inspirational poster somewhere, but it was like, you don't have a work life and a home life, you have one life, go. And I think that the more I can think about that, and the more veterans can remember that concept that you don't have a military career, and a civilian career and a home life, you have one life, you have one soul that you're responsible for. The more you can view these as different chapters in the book that is your life, I think the more complete you're gonna be able to feel as you continue writing new chapters.
0: I agree with that a hundred percent. It's not it's very easy to look at it in this very segmented way, but I, I think it's difficult to draw learnings and apply them in a new context which is something that we have to do one of the most difficult things about having served before is hey what is actionable that i want to bring with me to the rest of my life and if you are looking at it as this very like split timeline it's going to be super difficult to do that
1: yeah absolutely
0: joel i appreciate your time on this man this has been good thank you so much for sharing what can myself or anybody listening do to be useful to you honestly i don't have a
1: ton that i need at the moment i would say for sure reach out I'm, I'm pretty active on linkedin definitely connect on linkedin would love to hear from anybody that heard the podcast and if there's anybody found value in it would love to connect yeah other than that try to be a good human and take care of the community it's,
0: it's a small ask but a, a big ask at the same time <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> joel yeah, i appreciate absolutely. it
0: man thank you so much
1: awesome thanks brock
0: Thanks so much for tuning in today. Your listenership helps me better educate people like you and the rest of our nation's military, both past and present, on building a successful life outside of military service. If you're looking for more ways the top vets are leading more effective lifestyles, building businesses, and using the resources designed specifically for you press here for a selection of some of the best clips. Be sure to like this video and subscribe to the channel to stay up to date, and I will be talking with you soon.